This evening we're going to be in Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. And uh, the title of the message is Restoration Promise. We'll read through the text. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you. And I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea. And its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. <clears throat> Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion. And be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. And he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word, the encouragement you give us in your word. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the promises that you give us in your word. We just come to you this evening and we ask that you be with us, that you open up this text to us, that you, you show us your glory and your provision. And, Lord, just show us your grace and your salvation in your word. Lord, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to begin by reading a, a verse to you from another prophet, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. It says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's Zechariah 4, 6. Last week, <clears throat> we looked at the second oracle of the prophet Joel. And it was the day of the Lord. That's what he was talking about. The day of the Lord. The day that the judgment of the Lord was coming. And the book of Joel is what we're going through. It has three chapters containing four oracles spoken by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Joel. The setting for Joel's prophecy is the time immediately preceding the invasion of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean army. The first two oracles are a warning. They're a declaration of the coming judgment 
that's coming against Judah and the siege of Jerusalem and, and both the people and even the land itself are going to be judged and come under judgment because of idolatry, because the people haven't trusted God alone as the source of all good. In this way, Judah, both the people and the land, are a mirror image. They're a type of all humanity in the entire world. Rather than trust in God alone and look to Him for all their provision, the people of Judah engaged in Baal worship. They were a secular people. Their hope and their interest was fixed in the physical realm. They were looking at the world around them. They were looking at the crops and the fields and foreign policy and kings and and, and politics and all of these things that occupy us daily. That's what they were looking at and it's what they were looking to. They were interested in food, culture, religious practices, the temple worship. They followed the letter of the law as far as sacrifice, feast, and festivals were concerned. <clears throat> and their hope, their pride, was attached to their outward religious practice rather than God who these observances were pointing them to. Well, all of this is a reflection of Adam, who believed the lie that goodness and fulfillment could and ultimately must be found on our own apart from God's gracious and perfectly wise provision. You know, when you reject God's provision, when you reject what God gives, then you get the opposite. You get exactly the opposite. The depth and simplicity of the ideas in Scripture used to astound me as I was looking through these things. Um, what is on display here in Joel's prophecy is unbelievably relevant to our modern context. The reality that God has created is a binary reality. Just, just let that sink in for a minute. There's only two ways. There's only two kingdoms. There's only two. Um, I'll, I'll read you a couple of scriptures to kind of get it in our minds. This is from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you. That God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. God is light, and in him there's no darkness. You can have light or you can have darkness. But if you have light, you don't have darkness anymore. The light drives out the darkness. You're going to have one or the other. Jesus said the light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. Men chose darkness over the light. That's one verse that, that points this out, the, the binary nature of reality. Uh, another one from 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. You can have God, and you can have life, or you cannot have God, and you can have death. But you can't have both. If you're going to have life, you have to have God. For the wages of sin is death. But the 
free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 6.23. So to have life and light, you have to have God. You have to be reconciled to God. Reality at its core is binary. The world of humanity is in absolute and utter rebellion against this concept. You know, one of the popular catchwords among young people today is non-binary. <clears throat> That's their declaration that they reject what they consider to be oppressive stereotypes of gender and reality forced on them by ignorant and unenlightened slaves of a bigoted system. You know, there's literally nothing new under the sun. The world thinks they're so sophisticated and enlightened and they're actually just Adam telling the God who created them, nah, I, just, I think I'll do it my way. I think it'd be better. I think I could do better on my own. The truth is you either have dependence on God's provision alone, which equals light, life, and blessing, or you look to your own understanding and you get the opposite of light, life, and blessing, which is darkness, death, and cursing. And that's what the first two oracles of Joel have been about. They, they have chosen darkness, death, and cursing because they have not looked to God. They have chosen to be separated from God. <clears throat> so the first two oracles are about man reaping what he has sown. The next two oracles, the one that we're going to begin with today, and we're not going to finish it. We're going to begin with it. And then the last one are both about God intervening. They're about God's intervention and not because of God's intervention for his own glory, his people don't necessarily get what they have sown. It's the but God part of the oracle. So we'll start in verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. Now then is not a good word here. The word that's translated then in my New American Standard is a transitional word. It should be either and or but. It should say either and the Lord will be zealous for his land or but the Lord will be zealous for his land. The reason why I say that is because the Hebrew word is just a transitional word that could be translated any of the three. Then is interpretive. So the translators, the sneaky little rascals, are interpreting the text for us there by using the word then. Um, it's not intentional, it's just what they did. They used the word then and it's interpreted. And the first thing that does is it gives the impression that the restoration that God is about to promise is in response to the repentance that Joel was calling for at the end of the second oracle. And he did. He called them to repentance. He calls them to call a solemn assembly, get everybody together, get the priests and have them Get them between the porch and the altar, make an intercession for the people. And he even tells them what to say in repentance. And so you read that, and then you start reading this 
this uh, text here, with that translated then, it kind of gives the impression that this promise that God is getting ready to make is in response to that repentance. Well, the truth is that the vast majority of the people that Joel's talking to don't repent, ever. They didn't ever repent. Judgment came, and God still, but God still sovereignly fulfills the promise. Not as a response to the temporal nation of Israel, but as a response to the true Israel, the true high priest, Jesus. God is going to fill this, fulfill this promise. But the promise he's about to make is going to be fulfilled as a response to his son. So that's the first reason why it should be translated then. And the second thing is that then gives the impression that there's a temporal time factor involved. Like then, this is what happened. He called them to repentance. And then the Lord will be zealous for his land and do this. Like if something's going to happen pretty quick. Well, there was about 500 years past. So it wasn't something that was then, just immediately after. Um, it was 500 years or so later when God fulfilled the promise of this third oracle at Pentecost. So what we really need to see in this is we need to see that this is not something that God does because Judah or humanity or we or anybody deserves merits or somehow draws it out of God. What he's going to promise and what he's going to do to reconcile humanity to himself is totally free. It's a totally free and independent action. It's because of the character of God, not the repentance of Judah. God is jealous. He is zealous. If you're, if you're reading the King James, I think it says jealous. But God is jealous. He's zealous for his creation. But they have the same connotation there. It belongs to him. God has created the universe. Everything, it belongs to him. He's not going to just let it go to perish under the curse. He's going to act to redeem and restore his creation. That's the first part. Also, God has pity or compassionate love for his people. Not because of who they are, but because of who he is. In Ephesians 2.4, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, his great love, with which he loved us. It wasn't about us. It was about God. Because of his great love, that he extended to and freely gave to us. If you ever ask why, why, and if you're a Christian, I'm sure you've asked this at some point, why? Why did God choose me? I've asked that. Why, why in the world would God choose to save me? Spurgeon asked that question. He said, it must have been before I was born because if he'd waited until after I was born, he never would have chosen me then. Um, you know, he was saying it tongue-in-cheek, but, but the point is, that's something that if you truly understand who God is, you're going to ask that. Why would God ever choose to save me or anyone, really? Why would God redeem this wretched world? We look around at the world and, and the shape that it's in and the evil that we see. Well, this is the answer. 
The world belongs to him. It's his. And he's zealous for it. He's jealous for it. And he's rich in mercy and sovereign love. And he's not just going to give it away. He's going to sovereignly act to redeem and restore his creation and to redeem his people. And that's the answer that we get through Joel. Verse 19 says, The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them, and I will never again make your reproach among the nations. Now, grain, grapes, and olives were the agricultural staples of ancient Palestine. Grain, grapes, and olives. The reason why it says new wine and oil is because in order to preserve the grapes and the olives, they had to make wine and olive oil out of it. But they were the staple crops. That's basically what they lived on, was the grain, the wheat, the barley, the oats, the corn, and then the they grew those crops and then they grew the olives and they grew the grapes. And so those are the big three that are mentioned and they're mentioned over and over again. And when these crops were producing abundantly, there was prosperity and security in the land. This is God's way of saying when he says this, that when he says, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you're going to be satisfied and full with them. It's God's way of saying, I'm going to sovereignly provide for my people. I will be the sole source of sustenance for my people. We'll look back at Joel 2.8. Uh, not Joel. Uh, I'm going to look at Hosea. Excuse me, Hosea 2.8. And this is God speaking about his bride. Because he's doing it through the story and the prophet, the story that he gave, um, that he brought about in the life of Hosea. See, he's, he's using, he tells Hosea to marry this prostitute. And then God says, this is me and my people. This is a picture of us. And God talking about his people, he says, for she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. See, she wanted all those things, but she didn't realize, she didn't understand that they all came from God, that they all came from her husband. And God is telling us that in the restoration, he's going to be the provider of everything that his people needs, and they're going to understand that it all comes from him. I'm going to sovereignly provide for my people. And I believe, I believe with all of my heart that this understanding that everything we have comes from God is a fruit of the Spirit. I believe that's a fruit of the Spirit of God living inside a person. When I first became a Christian, and I was an adult when I became a Christian, and one of the first epiphanies, you know, when I became a Christian, it's a little little short rabbit trail. When I became a Christian, my the verse that I would say just fits my testimony is like Paul's, like the Apostle Paul's, where he says that the light, or he says that God who commanded light to shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
That's what happened to me when I was saved. It was like I had all this. I had lots of knowledge. I had read the whole Bible before I was a Christian. I memorized scriptures as a little kid in Bible school. I had lots of scripture memorized. But whenever I was saved, it's like God just reached in and turned on the light switch, and I saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. Amen. That's when I became a Christian. And so, and, and then what's funny is after that, and you start reading the Word and studying and meditating on Scripture and seeing Christ in the Word, you start having these epiphanies. More light switches get turned on. You know, you have that first one turned on, and then you'll be thinking on Scripture and meditating, and all of a sudden there goes another one. And one of the first epiphanies that I had after becoming a Christian, I was at work one day, and it just struck me. And I, I was one of those people that I worked hard, and I worked overtime. I worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week a lot of times. I worked in a plant, manufacturing plant. I was a supervisor and uh, responsible for lots of people and equipment and all of this stuff. And uh, I, I didn't think the place could run without me, you know. So I never took off. I never... One guy told me, he said, sometimes you just have to shut your eyes and walk out the door, you know. But, well, that may be true. But, but anyway, um, I was at work one day, and I'm meditating on Scripture, and I'm, we, we struggled a lot financially, even though I did all that work. But before I became a Christian, I never tithed. I never gave. Because we're always in a bind. We always needed money. We always had bills to pay. The kids always had stuff that they needed. And I would justify that to myself by, well, the Lord would want me to take care of these responsibilities before doing this or this. And it just hit me out of the, the blue sky. Every good thing comes from God. It all belongs to Him. If I have anything, it's because God gave it to me. I mean, it just hit me like a, a lightning bolt. And I went home that evening and I told Charlotte, I said, we're going to start giving regularly. I don't care if we've got it or not. We're going to give it because it's not ours anyway. It belongs to God and he provides it. And if he wants us to have this or that or do this or that, he'll provide it. And we start, and I'm going to tell you something. This is my endorsement of, of what the Bible says as far as giving. It's true. It's misused by people. But the truth is, uh, I firmly believe that God takes care of his people. And if you obey God, he honors that. And he did. We started giving regularly, and I don't know how it happened. I can't explain it. But all I can tell you is we were better off after we started giving regularly with no change in income. We were better off than we were before. The only thing that changed is God just showed me that he was the source of everything that I had and everything that I ever received, and I just started trusting it all to him. And so, and I believe that's the fruit of the Spirit. I believe that happens when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of a person. And so, 
that's one of the first things that is going to happen that he tells them when he starts restoring his people is that he's going to provide for them and they're going to have everything they need. It's going to be from him. It's all going to come from him. And they're going to understand that. Um, captivity and uh, bondage, slavery, are what makes the people of God a reproach among the nations. It's what makes people a reproach among the nations. He says, I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. Well, what made them a reproach? Well, they were carried off into captivity. They were enslaved. Um, well, there was a temporal, a partial fulfillment of this promise in uh, Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it to you. Um, we see it. This happened 70 years later, roughly, after the fall of Jerusalem. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and you got to, in order to understand how this is fulfillment of this, is during this time period, after Jerusalem and Judah had fell and all the, pretty much all of the people of Judah and Jerusalem had been carried off into captivity in Babylon and other places. Um, after that, right about this time, which is around 70 years later, it's a little bit less the way it works out, but, but about this time, the Persians overthrow the Babylonians. They overthrow the Chaldeans. And the first thing that Cyrus, king of Persia, does, he's got a different foreign policy than Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The first thing that Cyrus, king of Persia, does, and he does it by God's sovereign plan in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, <coughs> the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Each survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So if you think about that, think carefully through that. Ever, all of these exiles just got a free ticket home. If they want, just go home. Go home and rebuild the temple, according to Cyrus. <coughs> that is a partial fulfillment of what God is going to do it's a temporal fulfillment but it is a really clear picture of the gospel really and what has happened in the gospel so one thing we should note about that is not all of those exiles took advantage 
of that offer. Actually, more of them didn't than did. It was a minority of those who were exiled who actually, they, they, they felt like their lives were better out in the world and they just went ahead and they were comfortable and they just went ahead and stayed where they were. The majority did. But there were some that took the free offer and went back. That's kind of the way it works with the gospel. It's freely offered. Not everybody takes advantage of that offer. Paul explains the new covenant fulfillment of this promise, though, to us in Romans 6, 16 through 22. This, this, this uh, fact that we'll never again be a reproach among the nations, Romans 6. And you may think, huh, when I start reading it, but I'll explain it to you. See, their, their reproach is that they're in slavery. They're in bondage in the world, in the nations of the world. They get set free from that bondage and get to go home. Well, Paul says we're all enslaved. Jesus actually said that too in, in John chapter 8. But I'll, I'll go with Paul's presentation here. He says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed, those things that brought you reproach? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. That's the new covenant fulfillment of this promise that God's people will never again be a reproach among the nations. They'll never again be enslaved because God has set them free from their bondage and their slavery and he's brought them to himself. <clears throat> Verse 20. He goes on, he says, but I will remove the northern army far from you and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea. And its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. <clears throat> well, let me get a drink. Palestine, the region, the area where Israel and Judah was located, and Syria, all of this area has the Mediterranean on the west, the Mediterranean Sea, and on the east is desert. Neither one of them 
at this time of history, were good places to attack from, to bring an invading army. So the invasions pretty much always came from the north. That was the primary invasion route. The Assyrian army that wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel came from the north. And the Chaldean army that wiped out Judah came from the north. <coughs> and this northern army is typological of the enemies of God's people. Um, the fulfillment of this promise in verse 20 is an eschatological fulfillment. It's partially fulfilled in the already. You know, Christians, we live in the already and the not yet. That's where we live. We live in between the already and the not yet. Jesus has already come. The kingdom of God has come. But it's not yet been consummated until Christ comes again and, and burns all this corruption up and, and makes all things new. A new heavens and a new earth. And we live in between the already and not yet. So, <clears throat> this promise of verse 20 is partially fulfilled in the already and it's looking forward to its complete fulfillment in the not yet, which is coming on the last day. That's what we're waiting for. So, if we remember that the great northern army is the agent, it's, a, it's symbolic for the agent of God's justice that comes as a result of rebellion against and sin, I mean this rebellion against God, this sin and, and separation from God, well this northern army symbolizes God's justice that comes because of that. Now, Christians have been freed from our bondage to sin and our rebellion against God on a spiritual level. And we have restored communion with God. However, on the temporal level, the army's still there. The army's still here. We still struggle. We still get sick. We still physically die. But the day is coming when that won't be the case. The day is coming when that army will be gone. In Revelation 20, chapter 14, John is describing Judgment Day, the last day when all the accounts are being settled before the throne of God. And in verse 14, he says, <coughs> Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. I believe this is the ultimate, complete fulfillment of Joel 2.20. Um, the covenant curses against Israel and all humanity for the rebellion against God were, the covenant curses were removal, exile, which is banishment, and corruption, death, decay. The curses that were upon God's people are ultimately transferred to the enemies of God's people. The grave, in the age to come, the grave is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. We're not going to have the grave. We're not going to, we'll, death will be no more. It's all going to be swallowed up in life and swallowed up in victory. And that's going to be done away with. And that's what is being referred to here with this northern army, this enemy that has brought 
the punishment upon God's people, it's going to be gone. And it's going, the curses that it brought upon God's people are going to be turned on its head. Verse 21, he says, Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit, the fruit tree and the vine have yielded in full. Verses 20 and 21 and 22. <coughs> it wasn't just the people who suffered because of their rebellion against God. Um, also the land, nature, vegetation, and animals suffered as well. Um, and this is the way it's been from the beginning. Uh, I talked about this when we were going through um, Joel chapter 1, but in Genesis 3, verse 17, <coughs> God is talking to Adam and Eve and the serpent, and he's dealing out judgment upon all of them. In verse 17, it says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Now, he goes on to tell Adam that, that from now on, he's going to have to toil, he's going to have to work, and he's going to have to, instead of creation just freely providing for him, it's going to be a struggle. But the reason it's going to be a struggle is because of the curse. Cursed is the ground, the very creation, because of you. And creation itself has suffered because of the sin of man. In Joel chapter 1, the goodness of God's creation is consumed by locusts. The, this invading army is, is pictured as locusts just coming through and just shredding everything and, and wiping it all out. And the whole creation suffers because of it. And, and then drought. And these curses are brought on by man's idolatry. But God's promise to redeem and restore is not just to redeem and restore his people, but his creation as well. Paul tells us in Romans 8.22 that the whole creation groans in anticipation of this coming redemption. And this is his promise right here in verses uh, 21 and 22. Not just the people are going to be redeemed, but also the creation. Verse 23 says, So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he's poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. <clears throat> the imagery of blessing and restoration continues with the promise of early and latter rain. No more drought. God's rain cycle will be restored and everything will begin to grow again. Now, there's a lot of debate among commentators and translators about how to render the early rain for your vindication. If you look at the, um, the first part of the verse there, it says, uh, He has given you, actually the second part, He's given you the early rain for your vindication. If you're reading the, well, I'll give you some of the different renderings here in a minute. The Hebrew word that is translated vindication is actually best translated righteousness. 
<coughs> it's actually best translated righteousness. But the New American Standard and the ESV translated vindication. Um, translators have come up with several different renderings. And I just told you the New American Standard ESV both say for your vindication. The King James says he has given you the former rain moderately. And the NIV says he's given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. One commentator suggested as a teacher of or to teach you righteousness. He's given you the, the early rains as a teacher of or to teach you righteousness. But I, I believe that John Calvin hit the right translation. I, I believe he got it right, but then he rejected it. He, uh, thank you, brother. <coughs> Calvin said that one possible translation was he has rained righteousness on you. And he rejected it because he didn't think it made sense. Well, I think in the context that that is exactly the right translation. He has rained righteousness on you. In the context of this oracle is God's sovereign reversal of the curse and the restoration of his people. And Peter makes the bold claim in Acts 2, verses 16 through 21, that what is being witnessed by the people present at Pentecost is the fulfillment of this oracle. In Matthew 5, 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. So think about what has happened and what is going on there at Pentecost where Peter says this oracle that we're looking at right now is being fulfilled. Jesus Christ, who is the Lord our righteousness, has lived the perfect life as a representative of his people. He's lived it completely dependent upon the Spirit and submitted to the will of his Father as the representative head of his people. And then he dies as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people. He rises from the grave. He ascends into heaven. He enters into the holy place to make intercession for his people. And now at Pentecost, he literally causes his spirit to rain down upon and fill his people from all mankind. Praise the Lord. I think... Calvin had the right translation, even though he rejected it. I think that that should say, <clears throat> be glad in the Lord your God, for he has rained righteousness upon you. And he's poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. Verse 24 and 25. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. <clears throat> Verse 24 is a repetition of the promise that the three main food staples of grain, grapes, and olives will be abundantly provided. God forbid it. He, he, he repeats it. 
he's making it clear that his people are not going to allow, they're not, they're not going to lack for any good thing, even a double portion. He's saying it twice so that you'll know, I'm going to provide for the needs of my people. <coughs> Verse 25 is primarily looking to the age to come. The not yet. As we said before, the locust of the flesh, you know, sin, sickness, disease, trials, pain, death, etc. That great northern army hasn't been cast into the lake of fire yet. But this is the promise that Paul is looking to when he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, that though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. That's what Paul is thinking of here. This idea, this idea that God is going to He's going to make up for you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. All, the, all of the curse and all of the affliction of this world, all the pain and all the suffering. And we kind of have a hard time with this, maybe in this country, because we don't suffer near as much as a lot of other people do. But we do. All of us know people that suffer from extreme pain, physical illness, Poverty, emotional anxiety, um, <clears throat> just one thing after another we could, we could say that people suffer from because of the fallen man, because of the sinful nature, because of the curse that is on this world. But God says, I'm going to make it all up. And not only that, it's all going to be gone forever. It's all going to be swallowed up in life and an eternal weight of glory. Now, with that being said, I will say that many of us get to enter into some of that restoration of the years that the locusts, you know, having the years that the locusts have eaten restored to us. Some of us get a little picture of that on a small scale in this life. I mean, I know that I personally, I said I was saved as an adult. I have definitely had a much different, greater experience of this life as a Christian than I had before. I have, but that is due to the renewal of the inward man. It's not that the outward world has changed any, or that I haven't had the same aches and pains and sicknesses and trials and heartaches and all that, but I've got a new heart and a different perspective. That's the renewal of the inward man. The promise that Joel is looking to here is a complete reversal of the curse, a complete restoration and a complete restoring to God's perfect creation, uncorrupted by sin or death or decay or any such thing. <clears throat> Verse 26. He repeats again that you're going to have plenty and be satisfied. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you then my people will never be put to shame. You know, 
The virus that Satan introduced to Eve in the garden was discontentment. It was dissatisfaction with God's provision. It was this idea that God is holding something back from, from us that we really need in order to be fulfilled. You know, as I, as I think through these verses when I'm studying, it, it, as I said earlier, it never ceases to amaze me how current and front page these issues are for us right now, today. When we think about the issues that are in the headlines today, things that are going on, things that we see in the world all around us. If you, you think about transgenderism, but that's a big thing. You know, it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, that's rebellion against God's order. Well, yes, it is. But so is greed. So is adultery. So is pornography. So is pedophilia. So is lust for power. So is um, selfishness. And the thing is, all of these things are rooted in the idea that there is something better than what God provides. That's what they're rooted in. Everything that we could name off, for one thing, as I said, there's nothing new under the sun because it's been there from the beginning. When we look around at these things, we say, oh, look how bad the world's getting. Well, no, it's been there since Genesis 3. The nature of man has been that way from the very beginning that he believed the lie that there was something to be found outside of God's provision. And that idea always ends in a curse. When God reverses the curse, he says his people will be satisfied in him and what he provides. They really will. This is a promise. It's not an admonition. He's not saying... Um, be satisfied. He's saying you will be satisfied. You know, this made me think of a story when I was a kid. This is something my dad used to do. Oh, that would make me so mad. When I was a kid, and my dad would make me do something that I didn't want to do, sometimes my mouth and my face might give away the fact that even though I was physically obeying him, I wasn't happy about it. Um, even though... Um, he might have told me to, to sit down and I might sit down but in my heart I was still standing up and my face would show it and, and sometimes my mouth would maybe speak it as well well my dad would add insult to injury by telling me not only are you going to do it but you're going to smile while you're doing it and uh, you're going to like it well that's not what Joel was saying here that's the, the point that I'm getting is that's not what Joel was saying. He's not saying you're going to suck it up and be content with God's provision outwardly, whether inwardly you are or not. And a lot of times that's why we think about these things. We, that's legalism. Thinking that I'm going to just conform myself and do this and God will be pleased with me. That's not what Joel is saying. What Joel is saying is that God's provision for his people is going to be such that they will be 
satisfied. Period. Do you remember what Jesus said? I quoted it a while ago from Matthew 5, 6. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Meaning those who hunger and thirst for Him will be satisfied. They will be satisfied. Those who are satisfied in God will praise His name and they will never be put to shame. They will never experience the curse because they will never look anywhere else except to God. Because as Moses, I, I'm not going to read all these scriptures. I, I've had mercy on you. didn't include them because of time. But Moses is on the mountain with God and he just tells God, Oh God, show me your glory. And he got a glimpse of the glory of God and he said, Lord, don't send us anywhere unless you go with us. Because he had seen the glory of God. Paul says that he is devoted to God and he devotes his life to preaching the gospel in spite of all kinds of suffering and persecution and opposition because of one thing. He has seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. And once you've seen the glory of God, you're ruined for anything else. You will be satisfied in God and you won't look somewhere else. In verse 27 is the conclusion of that. He says, thus you will know that I, this is the Lord speaking, am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. He repeats it again. You will know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am present with my people. Um, I am going to actually read you that from Exodus 33 where Moses is with God on the mountain. And uh, starting in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, Moses said to the Lord, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us? so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing in which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. The first, foremost, number one blessing of complete restoration and removal of the curse is the presence of God. Amen. Having the presence of God in His people, with His people, 
God in the midst of his people. And the second is that he is the Lord our God. And when he is the Lord our God and we are with him, and that's the way the whole world, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. As long as you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's the same thing. What separates the people of God from the world, what gives us the power to forgive people that wrong us, what gives us the, the grace to endure hardships and not curse the darkness, not react the way the world reacts, it's not us. It's the grace of God. The grace of God and His people. The only thing that distinguishes any of us from anybody in this world is the grace of God, the Spirit of God in us. And that's why Moses prayed that prayer. The only way that the nations will know that we're your people is if you're there with us. That's it. Because that's the only thing that will set us apart. And the second thing is that when God is with us, we're content in Him, His provision, and His presence, and we will have no desire for another. And so, because of that, we will never be put to shame because we'll never turn away. People who are intimately connected to God and content in Him will never be put to shame because there's nothing else that can draw them away. And and God loves to do this because, as Brother John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And that is, that's really the message of this text that we've been looking at in Job. God is going to be glorified in His people by making us satisfied and content, perfectly content in Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for your grace and mercy and your goodness and your work in this world for your glory. Restoring this rebellious and unthankful and broken people. Pulling us out and, and rolling back this curse and, and restoring your presence drawing us to yourself and showing us your glory and everything that you are doing in this world to fulfill your redemptive purpose to redeem both your creation and your people. Oh Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.